This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. You're a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. I'm Tony Robinson, and I'm filling in for Zachary Moore this week. Yeah, thank you, Tony. We appreciate you joining the show, and... And bringing a key component of the team working on Project Enterprise, the team that designed and built uh, my favorite starship of all time, the refit Enterprise from Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's great to uh, have uh, a very special guest today from the Project Enterprise team. And before I say who he is, let me just give you a bit of background as to how he came to be here. Uh, I met this gentleman here in the UK a number of years back. Uh, over a pint in the local pub, as you do. And uh, he turned to me and said, uh, well, as you do, you, you, you say hello. I noticed he had this very strange accent that uh, didn't uh, in, indicate he was from around these here parts. And he was from over the pond. And I said, where are you from? He said, San Francisco. I said, oh, really? Um, <clears throat> the future home of Starfleet, as I recall, he looked at me and said, why did you say that? And I said, well, you know, that's where uh, Star Trek, that's where it all happens in the future uh, in San Francisco. He then said, well, I worked on Star Trek. <laughs> and it was my turn to, <laughs> I went, what? He said, yeah, I worked on Star Trek. I said, what did you do? He said, I painted the Enterprise. Wow. Now, just a little background to the pub we were in. Just, uh, it wasn't any random, well, it was a random pub in a sense, but it's a very famous pub here in the heart of Surrey, where I live. It's called The Windmill, and it's on a place called Pitch Hill. And next door to The Windmill uh, lives a, 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 a part-time guitarist you may have heard of called Eric Clapton. And uh, in the garden of The Windmill, one day, he and George Harrison wrote, Here Comes the Sun. And he included that in his book. So we were in a good place. Uh, so let me introduce to you the gentleman who gave the Enterprise its sparkling ball gown. And that gentleman is Mr. Paul Olson. Well, howdy. <laughs> oh, Paul. Well, you? that's appropriate for, a, for an American, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's, that's very common from San Francisco, isn't it, Paul? Uh, well, it used to be. <laughs> I don't know what it is now. <laughs> Might be a little bit different, yeah. Yeah, it's all changed, I think. <laughs> I got hey, out of there just in time. 
<laughs> it's yeah, it's a it's a whole different world. But anyway, hey, it's a real honor to have you on the show. And it's you know what what I really uh, want to get into is is if you don't mind to walk us through your history and your involvement with with the motion picture and the enterprise and. And then we'll we'll kind of walk into this project that you're working on, so that we can we can pull everybody into it. So if we can start with a little history of your your, your artistry and effects experience in Hollywood and the adventure and designing this ship, that would be great. Uh, okay, well, uh, uh, thank you, Ken. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the show. It's, it's an honor to be on the show. There we go. Um, I. I, I had been living in England for a few years, and I, I moved to L.A. Uh, I was playing music, and I had done a few album covers for Robin Trower, which had become quite well-known in, in the uh, industry. And uh, uh, the record business began to fold up a bit because during the Arab oil embargo, vinyl was impossible to get in, in the U.K., and all the record companies, uh, the rock and roll companies, were moving to Los Angeles because in America you could still get vinyl and they could press the records. And, and most of their business was in America anyway. So I moved to L.A. with a bunch of friends of mine and um, I started getting illustration work, basically. And I met an English illustrator named Peter Lloyd, who did an awful lot of Playboy stuff, and he did the album covers for Kansas, and he did the Rod Stewart Atlantic Crossing cover and a whole bunch of, I mean, he's really well known. And um, so he taught me how to use an airbrush because all my uh, Trower covers at that point, I tried to make them look like airbrush, but I didn't know how to use one. And I painted them in oils and I was able to uh, spread the oils and and, uh, blend them so that they looked like they were airbrushed. And uh, But Peter was an airbrush master, and so I started working with him, and he taught me how to use an airbrush because it's a tricky instrument. And one of Peter's best friends was another English guy named Ed Scaresbrick. And Ed shared a studio uh, in Hollywood with the top airbrush illustrator at the time in America named Charlie White. And Charlie got a phone call one day, uh, from a friend of his that he grew up with and went to art school with named Jim Dow. And Jim Dow had the contract. Uh, well, Jim Dow was a creative director of Magicam, and Magicam had the contract to build all the models for the first Star Trek motion picture for STMP. And uh, so Jim called Charlie and uh, asked him, you know, would you like to sort of paint the enterprise and uh, because Jim, Jim wanted to do it, but he, he didn't have enough time running the model shop and uh, being the creative director and everything. And uh, so Charlie said, I, there, I there's no way I can do that. I'm just too busy. Um, and he, and Jim said, well, do you know anybody? And uh, uh, so Charlie said, uh, I think I might actually. And he turned around to Ed and he said, Ed, don't you have a friend of yours who's a, you know, pretty good with an airbrush and looking for work? And Ed said, yeah. And so Charlie gave Ed Jim's phone number. And I'm up in my studio. Uh, I had this, I rented this beautiful house up in Silver Lake in, in the hills with a fantastic view. And it was where uh, Richie Valens recorded uh, Come On, Let's Go, O'Donna, and the vocal track for La Bamba. Uh, back in the 50s, which I didn't know at the time. But anyway, I had this fabulous place, and 
I was sitting at my desk and looking out over LA and the phone rings and I picked up the phone and I heard the most wonderful, <laughs> this is the most wonderful phone call I've ever received. Paul, it's Ed. How would you like to paint the Starship Enterprise? And that was it. <laughs> and so he gave me Jim's details and I hopped on my uh, Yamaha 650 vertical twin and I zoomed into Hollywood yeah. and showed Jim my stuff. And he said, I think you'll do. And uh, Jim walked me into the, into the main uh, model uh, studio and introduced me to everybody and then walked me back into the spray booth. And Ken, there she was. Yeah. Oh, uh, I mean, magnificent. I, I, I get goosebumps even thinking about it, you know, just seeing the Enterprise, uh, as I say, naked with her wings spread, waiting for me to have my way with her. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to describe it. That's, that, yeah. Listen, that is the only way to describe it, because there she was. There she was. I mean, it was. It was a wonderful moment, and I, I would love for people to be able to experience something like that. Did you, uh, Paul, um, did you have any sense of the, you know, the, the legacy or the history of Star Trek at this point in time? I mean, you're, you're walking into a spray booth. You obviously know what you're dealing with, but did you have any sense of the continuity uh, with Star Trek? Because Star Trek hadn't been on TV for 11 years or 10 years at, at this point. No, I mean, I, 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 I had, I had only absorbed uh, the general idea of Star Trek. I think I watched an episode back in the '60s, which I wasn't impressed with, to be frank. Um, but maybe it was a bad episode. I don't know. Um, and, uh, but I, I certainly knew what the Enterprise was. I mean, everybody did, you know. And to to see her right there, I mean, I could reach out and touch her. I mean, I was uh, it magnificent. No. <laughs> As you were talking, Paul, it's funny. I I was putting little boxes together with arrows and kind of following the the trail from Rob to Peter to Ed to Charlie to Ed to you, <laughs> getting back into the shop. And you know, it, it is remarkable how um, it, you know you 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 weren't in Hollywood, quote unquote, in in a special effects group or working for Magic Ham. Uh, you happen to be the roommate, somebody who knew you, um, and polishing a skill and here you are pulled into at that time which was one of the largest productions going on in Hollywood right turned out to be and I'll just pass this on to you um uh, Paramount never let it out but we know what that movie ended up costing and it was supposed to cost about 20 million uh, which was double the Star Wars budget right and it cost 120 million Oh, is that right? In in real dollars back then? Yeah, you see, you'll see all kinds of numbers like 40 million, 60 million, 70 million, but it actually cost 120. I mean, it went so over budget and it was just, it just was crazy at the end. Wow. And does that include all the phase two work that got crunched into it or is it just the movie? No, it's just the movie. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, the quality of the movie still holds up beautifully today. It It just does. I mean, it's a, uh, it's amazing how well it was shot and, um, and the effects, you know, you can't, I don't think you can CGI better than what they did on that movie. Well, you had two extremely, um, talented, experienced people, 
doing all the effects. They were split between two people. One of them was Doug Trumbull, for whom I worked after the model got moved over to the to the effects shooting stage facility to, for me to finish it up. And the other one was John Dykstra, who was working with Con Pedersen. And Con Pedersen worked with Doug Trumbull on 2001, and they did all those fabulous Stargate effects at the end of the movie. I mean, these were two of the best uh, shops in the world at that time. Oh, that's amazing. So here you are. You get pulled in. Let's go back to that, that, that famous entranceway. There she is, the Starship Enterprise, and you get to work. Kind of get into exactly what what you did and what you put together. And, you know, were you also involved in the filming and the lighting of the ship when it got moving as well? Uh, well, no, I wasn't involved with the filming or the lighting, and but I'll get to that. Uh, but what, what happened after uh, Jim introduced me t- to the Enterprise um, and uh, – he then he he then said, uh, "Look, uh, you know it's a white ship, and I don't want to paint it in in various shades of gray. You know it'll just look terrible, which it would." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, "But I uh, a couple of years ago he had restored completely restored a 1935 Ford, and then he painted it with pearl paints, and he said, Paul, I want to use pearl paints on this baby.'" And that sounded great to me. So he told me where to go to buy them. And I I went down and I bought, uh, there were only four colors you could get. I mean, they're transparent, but they tend to reflect a basic color. Uh, And one was red, one was green, one was gold, and one was purple. I think it was purple. Red, green, oh, and blue. One was blue. And then they reflect the, the uh, depending on the angle of incidence of light and your point of view of looking at it, they reflect their opposite. So they're called flip-flop colors. They reflect their uh, color complement. So purple will reflect yellow and, 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 and orange and uh, red will reflect green. And so they, they, they go back and forth. And um, so I, I got the pearl paints and then it was up to me because everybody was busy. I was all by myself. And, and I had never airbrushed a thing. I'd only worked on illustration board, which absorbs inks. And, and now I'm working with lacquer paints. And lacquer paints in an airbrush are fantastic because the thinner in the uh, paint is also the solvent of the paint. So the, 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 the thinner that you mix the paint with into the airbrush cup uh, keeps the airbrush clean because airbrushes always have a problem with spitting and building up paint on the tip and everything. So it's constantly cleaning the airbrush. And as the paints get sprayed onto the surface, they melt into each other. So they are annealed into the surface and into each other. I mean, it's just fabulous. But here it was, I had this whole ship and Jim had made a start uh, with a girl named Susanna Swansea, who was a, a model maker and who knew, knew how to use an airbrush. And Jim had designed uh, on the saucer, the saucer is broken down into uh, radiating circles. And then those are divided by radiating lines. So you have these kind of little uh, crescent-shaped areas all around the saucer. And Jim wanted some panel breakup on the saucer besides all the radiating lines to give it scale. 
because it's a smooth ship. And, and so you can't add lots of little tiny bits on it like you could in all the ships in Star Wars, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, and, and so it had to be, have panel breakup, but still look white. And so he thought the pearl paints would be perfect. And so Jim designed this panel breakup that uh, uh, Susanna had had just started rendering, and but he really needed her in the shop, and he needed a full time person just working on the Enterprise, painting the Enterprise, and and this panel breakup. When I looked at it, I it, it reminded me it of a of a of an Aztec motif of almost like a person with their arms up and their legs spread and the head in the middle and. Uh, and so I just coined the phrase, Jim, it looks like an Aztec thing. And I quite like that because here you have an ancient American, I mean, America's symbol right. on a 23rd century American starship, you know, and putting them together. And I thought that was really uh, poetic and, and it looked good anyway. And so I just replicated the uh, Jim's design on the top and on the bottom part of the saucer. And then the rest of the ship was up to me. And I just did what the various shapes and, and uh, areas dictated would be the best. Did you, uh, Paul, did, when, you, when you turn up for work with your uh, airbrush and, and whatever, had you any clue as to how long this would take? Or did you just say, yeah, I'll knock this back out in a week and then I'll have a few beers with the lads and whatever. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I, I mean, uh, but I got a pretty good indication that, well, it took me three days to actually start airbrushing the Enterprise because I was testing and testing all the pearl paints on bits of, of, uh, of plastic that Jim gave me to test everything. And I have to admit, I was procrastinating a bit because I was really nervous about actually starting on the ship herself. Uh, so I got real comfortable with the paints and what they did and how they would build up if I, you know, and everything. And, uh, and then I had to make a start. And once I started, then it was fine. And, uh, but I could see it was going to take a long time, but, uh, you know, we were working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and we just had to do what we could do. And it ended up taking me six months. Well, it ended up taking eight months because somebody screwed up part of the ship at the end and we had to repatch redo a bunch of it so but it was it was a long process and there was no deadline to say uh we were we'll need it by the first of august or something like this well yeah the the movie release date was christmas of 79 and i started in i we can't remember when i started but we think it was either june or july of 78 well so, I, I mean, I knew we would get it done in time to shoot it um, because uh, Doug was still setting up the facility whilst I was finishing it up uh, because I moved over to the shooting stage uh, after four months and I still had two months of work to go on it. And it took Doug two months to, he had this big old factory that he had to change around and get all black and then bring in lights and and camera tracks and all the engineering equipment and a metal shop and a, everything. And I put in a small little theater to watch all the dailies. So it took him two months to do all that. So yeah, it, it finished on time. Um, when you were looking at the saucer and thinking, where will I start? Where did you start? Did you start at the bridge and work out or did you, you know, uh, start at the edge and work inwards or did you just pick a, 
a point and go for it? Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> I thought, okay, where, where's the least damaging place <laughs> I can start, you know, because uh, I, 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 uh, so I, I turned the ship on its side. Uh, so I, and I started on, on one of the outer uh, crescent shapes on the saucer on the bottom. So I worked on the bottom first and because I, I reckoned that all the major shots were going to be on the top, which in fact they weren't, you know, the, the lots of them were on the bottom, but it all came out fine. You know, that's, that's interesting. So it's a, how, how big was the model, Paul? Eight feet long. Eight feet long. So you had to work around the model. You couldn't adjust the ship or could you? Was it on some kind of a, um, a pedestal that could be rotated or turned or was it? Uh, five different ways. So it could be, uh, it, it could be, uh, it could be mounted on a pole that went through the back section, that went through the bottom, that went through one side, and that went through the front. I think it was the front or maybe the top, uh, okay. depending on how they wanted to shoot it. So it was, uh, when we had to rotate the ship, we got a couple of people in and we'd have to lift it and, and open up a door and get it back onto this stand. It was a bit like a, uh, a stand for an engine, you know, for a car engine. Yeah, and the thing, the thing weighed quite a bit. I don't know what it weighed, but I have a feeling it weighed three or 400 pounds. <laughs> well, there was a lot of uh, talk, it, a beautiful ship, but a, a real pain to work with because of its size and bulk and electronics and things. Well, there's a, it, there's a surprising amount of surface area to that ship. You know, there there are all these surfaces. Um, it 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 was almost. I I you know I I thought when am I ever you know I'm I'm, I'm making progress, but there's still so much to do. <laughs> but it was a beautiful design, and Richard Taylor, who designed the ship, just uh, I mean, if you look at richardtaylordesign.com uh, and just see what that man has done, uh, he's frightening. Okay, well, is is it is he? Um... Has, has he done a lot of other things in, in other movies too? I, I, the name just doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, yeah. well, he's he was the he was the effects director for Tron. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and uh, he's got, I think he's got thirteen or fourteen Clios because he did a lot of TV advertising, uh, Seven Up commercials that were all the first uh, CGI uh, commercials on in America, and uh, and and the stuff he's doing now, he's doing uh, he's got a uh, oh God, it's a 30 or 40 foot or 50 foot tall video screen at, in, at LAX in the International Terminal. Uh, and it's called Aquafem. And it's this girl who's underwater and she's got these long flowing gowns and all these bubbles. And uh, he's, he's right at the cutting edge of what you can do visually. Uh, and he's now working with uh, virtual reality. He, he's a, he's a, I mean, just look at his website. It'll, it'll knock you out. Yeah. Is that, that screen, is that the one when you go into the, uh, what is it, the, the Barclay building? Oh, uh, yeah, it's the, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? The, um, <laughs> you just threw me off there. <laughs> well, the, when I was going through yeah, it, yeah, the, the wall, mayor, is, Yeah, the, the, it starts with a B anyway, the terminal, the international <laughs> terminal. But there are several of those screens scattered all around the terminal. And there is? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He designed everything on them. He, he's, so oh, he's, for, 
So for people going through LAX, um, departing somewhere, they can look and see this giant. Screen. Oh, any giant, any giant screen they see at um, <laughs> at the uh, what's the t name of the term? It was the mayor of LA. Anyway, yeah. Pieces together on the ship in terms of painting, and is coming up with this incredible design, which at, at, it's it's become you know a, a a common phrase now when they talk about. Uh, ships in star trek does it have aztec does it not like the the latest enterprise version things along those lines but um so six months to put this together and then you said you had to come back after it was fixed so were you were you on on set uh when they were filming all the special effects were you were you also kind of the touch-up guy for this to make sure it was perfect well no what uh, it's a good question ken that's uh, very astute um when i i guess we were about uh three months into the uh, working at Magicam mm -hmm. and then Robert Abel, uh, which, who was the company that Richard Taylor had originally worked on somehow got control of the ship. And so we, we, we left Magicam and moved around the corner to another facility. It was a, it was a taxi uh, uh, garage and there was a little side room and we were set up in there and, um, at that point, uh, Abel, uh, Richard had hired a guy named Ron Gress, who was an absolutely phenomenal artist. I mean, boy, could, I mean, he was, talk about an airbrush artist. I mean, he was so much better than I was. And uh, so they brought him in. And, and so Ron uh, rendered all the, uh, what's now called a strongback section, that blue-green section of the ship, that's on the secondary hall and then up on the struts and uh, across the top of the secondary hall and the dorsal, the little bit that goes up the dorsal. And so Ron rendered and designed that um, whilst I was working on all, doing all the Pearl. And then uh, when, so Ron finished uh, before I did because the, he was really quick, but also he didn't have as much area to do as I did, but he stayed on and he actually did all the touch up while they were shooting because Doug had wanted me to go over to the facility down the street to help design the entrance effects for V'ger because I had a lot of film experience um, and airbrush. And, and so I was able to work with the process they were using, but um, the, the uh, uh, before I moved over, to the feature set, the after I finished the Enterprise and she was all ready to shoot, we wheeled her out onto the shooting stage, which was all black, black velvet curtains, drapes, and black floor, black everything. Mm -hmm. And the lighting guys closed the set, and they they had the uh, the space dock hung, okay. and they closed the set for three days while they lit the Enterprise in the space dock. And some of the tricks they used uh, were uh, they would have a, a spotlight shining down on a bunch of styrofoam blocks that had dental mirrors of different sizes on them with little swivels. And then they could, they, they could reflect off a dental mirror and send that beam up to exactly where they wanted it. And using a small mirror, they could make it a small beam. Using a big mirror, make it a big beam. And they could put Vaseline on the mirror to, to diffuse the light. Uh -huh. And it was, it was all this real simple, clever stuff. So they, after they got it all lit, and uh, then we, we got the whole crew and Doug together, because Doug hadn't seen it dramatically lit. 
and they we had we all held hands and they led us into the sound stage which was completely black and then they said is everybody ready and they hit the lights and they lit that baby up and i'll tell you what i mean everybody just gasped really and i couldn't believe how beautiful she was because i'd been working on her with neon lights everywhere sure so it's all flat lighting you know yeah and and now that she was dramatically lit i could see the movie right away you could just see it and i i mean it stunned everybody and i was gobsmacked and uh doug turned to me and he said paul you know it's it's a shame we're not going to be able to light her hot to get all the beautiful pearl paints because we'll get too many light kicks off the different colors and we won't be able to pull a clean mat to, to drop out the background and drop in the enterprise into a background nice and cleanly. Mm-hmm. And so they had to light her at low light and you, you lose a lot of the pearlescing effect. And so what people see in the movie that they think is beautiful is probably about 30 or 40% of what she really looked like. And that's a real shame. Yeah. But do you feel like the, the shadowing or the inability to see the whole thing added more to the realism of being, you know, out in space and so forth, if it, it, because it was all, all the light was organic, right? And even though it was, it was tricks of the trade to make the, the numbers and the names and the different areas of the ship light up it would be a very interesting circumstance where everything would be bright. And, you know, I, I think of, Oh no, but I'm just saying that, Oh, the lighting that they used, Mm -hmm. uh, they, they couldn't, they couldn't light it. They couldn't make it as dramatic looking as it really should have looked because of the matte problem. Were they they, able to get it? Cause you know, I see variances in the still photos they've taken of the ship. Yeah, were there some where they were able to kind of capture that a little bit better than others? Because it's it's hard to match it movie to to still print, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's that, that that's that's pretty cool. So that's a dramatic moment when when you saw the movie for the first time with the music and the motion. How did it impact you? Well, I mean that. I mean the movie was that we knew we were working on a turkey. Basically, uh, it wasn't. I'm sorry. I know it's a, it's your favorite film, but uh, well, it's favorite Star Trek film. Yes. Yeah, uh, but it, you know that the the studio wouldn't release any of the live action for us to marry up any of the shots to because they were embarrassed with the quality of of the film, and um, so. But I I saw it. Uh, I I was over. I was in London actually, and and I saw it here, and uh, I. I mean, it was very impressive seeing this on a big screen. And I'm, and then I'm wondering, you know, what shots are they going to use? How's it going to fit into the story and all the rest of it? Because I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, so, uh, I mean, when the, uh, when that reveal of the enterprise in, in the space dock was on the screen, it hit me just like it hit everyone who first saw that film. You know, I mean, there she was, there's, your enterprise bang you know here's a bit of this so it was pretty impressive i can imagine well i think the difference would be you played such an integral part of creating that look and that ship that uh you know for me it's funny i was um uh 12 or 13 years old something like that uh when when the movie came out in 79 and you know i I wasn't into star trek before i had seen it and um 
always was a big naval history buff, loved ships, loved things like that. And and the way this this and that's probably why it's my favorite, because of how beautiful the the motion picture was, the way it was filmed, and the way that ship just caught me. Um you know, it, it just had an impact that was indelible, and I've been a Star Trek fan since. And I, I, I just can't imagine how, um, if if it had been something that you personally had worked on, to see on a screen like that. And like I said, you fell into this thing. It's not like you were into movies or making movies. You 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 you've done a lot of great work, but in a completely different industry. No one can, no one, you know, you can talk about the albums and so forth and they can look at the, go, that, that's great. But once it's playing, you don't see it, but this is, uh, I can't even express what it must've been like for you. Uh, well, you've done a pretty good job. I'll tell you, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was magnificent and it was humbling. Um, and I, I, f- I felt like I was floating on a cloud when I walked out of the cinema in, in Leicester Square. I mean, it was it was it was a it was a it was a whole bunch of wonderful things all thrown in together. Yeah. So, as as time evolved and, and the motion picture was was left in the rearview mirror, and they started to make the sequels. Obviously, they did not put the time and the money uh, into the effects that the motion picture did. I'm quite certain there's a good reason why they couldn't afford it. But as you saw the other films and the way they lit the ship and treated the ship, what, what, were, your, what were your kind of feelings towards that? Well, it, 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 you know, when we finished the movie, I mean, the, the title of the film was Star Trek, the motion picture. Right. End of. But nobody had the actors, no, no, nobody at the studio, everybody thought, okay, we made the movie. Right. That's it. Done and dusted. Um, so, you know, everyone thought, okay, that's gone and on to the next project. Um, and then, you know, they, and uh, the, the ship was going to be, we had a, a beautiful custom made, uh, uh, flight case made for it and everything that was all padded. It was beautiful. And we put her in the case and she was going to be sent to the air and space museum in, um, in DC and hung floating in the air. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have one of my pieces, you know. Um, and, uh, and then they decided to make a second film. Uh, so that uh, ILM got that gig. And ILM used a different uh, filming technique than Doug used. Um, they weren't, um, they didn't want to play around with, uh, film used a, a filming technique called white screen, which is, quite complex and the cameras really have to line up perfectly and every shot has to be absolutely precise, which Doug could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so ILM shot at green screen. And the trouble was, is the, 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 the pearlescent paints, depending on what you were looking at, were reflecting every color in the rainbow. And so any shot would have some green in it. And when you have, like if you have a weatherman wearing a green tie standing in front of a green screen, the green tie will show through the background of whatever he's showing you, the, the weather chart or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So they would have holes in, in, in all their shots. And so what they had to do is they had to kill all the pearlescent paint and they, they dulled it all down and they had to respray some of it. And so they, right there, the enterprise was ruined forever. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, it's like taking, I don't want to sound too pompous, but it's like taking a Monet or the Mona Lisa or whatever and spraying it with dulling spray. You know, you just don't do that. But for, you know, for practical purposes, they had to get the thing done. And then in, in, uh, in subsequent films after that, CGI was coming along and they only used the model to map uh, the shape for the computers, you know, and then the guys could go in and, and, and they could, they could enhance everything and, and actually do artificial paneling or whatever they wanted to do uh, using CGI. And so the model was mishandled and I mean, it was in terrible condition by the time Paramount sold it at auction at Christie's in 2006. Was it? Yeah. Well, that's a shame. It is. Can I I just ask, um, at any point during the painting process when, you know, you, you and Jim devised the Aztec patterning and whatever. But at any point during the... No, Jim, Jim designed it. He, he designed the Aztec pattern. I just replicated it and rendered, rendered it. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say was, at any point during this process, did Richard Taylor stop by and say, hey, guys, you're doing a great job, or I, I designed the, out, the outline drawing of the ship, but I never imagined it would look like this, you know. So did he offer any uh, praise or comments? Well, no. What, see, I didn't know who Richard was um, it, because I only knew Jim, and Richard was working on other things with Robert Abel. Um, it, you know, he had done his bit, and he was on to other things. And uh, he dropped in a couple times, and what's interesting is Peter Lloyd, who was the guy who taught me how to use an airbrush and who was friends with Ed, who gave me the phone call. Um, Peter was doing a lot of stuff with Richard um, uh, and uh, well doing, they were working on Tron, I think. Was Tron after Star Trek or before? Yeah. Yeah. About two years after Star Trek. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, and, but Peter was working with, with uh, Richard whilst I was working on, on Star Trek on something over at Disney, I think. And um, uh, he kept talking about Richard Taylor, and um, and and a guy named Richard dropped in a couple times, and we met and talked and everything. And he said, "Oh, the ship looks beautiful." And Jim, you know, Jim brought him in, and but Jim never introduced me that to Richard as this is Richard Taylor who designed the Enterprise. He he said, "Oh, this is Richard," and he just wanted to have a look at the ship. And then Richard never told me, and so I never knew. <laughs> And and then you know afterwards, years afterwards, I I realized that the Richard Taylor Peter was talking about was the Richard I met that designed the Enterprise. So, yeah, because there's some famous um, photographs of Richard Taylor and Gene Roddenberry uh, leaning over some parts of the ship, or leaning over some designs, or leaning over some test pieces, yeah. scratching their heads and thinking, "Do we really want it this way, that way, the other way?" So he had a a close relationship with with Gene Roddenberry, and you know, so what you ended up painting was very much uh, coming out of that stable as well. So, oh yeah, well, I, I mean, there's that video on YouTube, I you know that we have that long interview with Richard and Jim where they tell the whole story and, and Richard talks about meeting with Gene and that Gene wanted 12 foot circular doors and it just made everything impossible. And, and Jim said, well, we wanted to iris the doors and, uh, and uh, Gene said, no, 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 they have to open like real doors, but they got to be 12 foot circles. And there were all these nightmares that Gene insisted on and they had to kind of come to grips with. 
You never got to have the Enterprise hanging in the Smithsonian in Washington, but it is hanging somewhere, or rather mounted somewhere, or in situ somewhere. Do you know where that is? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, it was, um, I mean, this we found out only a few years ago when I was getting Project Enterprise going, and we, I met with Richard and Jim and, and uh, interviewed them, and then, um, you know, we all wondered what had happened to our model, and it took me six months to find it, and because everybody thought that Paul Allen uh, had bought it, uh, at, at, because when it was auctioned at Christie's, it was an anonymous buyer, and so you, there's no way you can find out who got it unless the person who buys it tells everyone. And um, and I tried to get hold of Paul Allen. I knew a few people who knew him, and and I I just couldn't reach him. And finally, somebody from Microsoft got back to me and and said, um, Paul doesn't doesn't have it. He never had the ship. So then I had to start over and uh, I can't remember how I, oh, I, somebody sent me an email saying, well, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon has it, doesn't he? And so I followed that path and, <laughs> and got hold of Bezos. I, I couldn't get hold of Jeff, but I got hold of his people and uh, said, well, you know, we'd like to restore it. But there's a quid pro quo. If we restore it, and give her back her provenance and her uh, uh, her cachet, um, then she stays in the public hands. You know, it's because uh, I'm not going to do it for you. And um, but he didn't want it. He he wanted to keep it, and he's got it in his offices, and he uses it for a table centerpiece at parties, and you know, it gets fingerprints on it, and you know, <laughs> so. Well, well, I mean, uh, the enterprise is one of the greatest cinematic icons in history. I mean, if you look at her in profile, if you look at an outline, if you just look like a little black and white drawing of it, I don't think there's a person in the world who who wouldn't uh, be able to tell you what that thing was. If you said the shape and with those lines on it, what is it? I, I don't think there's a person in the world who wouldn't be able to tell you that was the Enterprise. Tony. Yeah. Tony, it... The Enterprise is the most famous movie icon ever created, without a doubt. Well, for for all those reasons, we're not going to argue with you on that one, are we? <laughs> no. <laughs> but for all those reasons, you make that, you know, that shape is so unique. Yeah. And um, and Star Trek is so the franchise is just it grows exponentially year on year on year. Um, I mean, it's it's the most revered uh, movie icon ever created. Slam dunk. It's leading me to uh, where you're heading with um, this project, which is called Project Enterprise. Um, how did that come about and, and why is, is kind of where I'm going with that? Well, you can, that's, got to, that's got to do with you, Tony. First of all, that's for okay, you. Okay, I'm trying to deflect some of the the storytelling away from me because I know I had a, a a part in it and for the record I'll just I'll just fill in that bit and tell everybody how it came to be but uh, really it's coming from you because uh you have the, you know the contacts you know the people and and uh you have the 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 honor of of, of being the guy who, who who made it happen um okay so where did I fit into this story 
Well, obviously, after that meeting, when uh, when we had a few beers in the in the pub, and and you found out I was interested in Star Trek, and then uh, I think for uh, quite a while after, every time I every time I met you, we would discuss one Trek thing after another, and and whatever. It never stopped coming up as a subject, and then we. This is going back to to two thousand and twelve. Early in 2012, I noticed um, somewhere that there was going to be a convention held in London, and it was called the Five Captains, and it was called Destination Star Trek London. And, but there, yeah, of course, there's been uh, Star Trek conventions here, there, and everywhere, all over the place. But this was a biggie. This was the first in-your-face convention, three days heavily advertised the biggest thing on the planet and they were gathering together uh the the five captains uh, of the various uh enterprises um from movie to tv and then i said how would how would it be if you got an opportunity to to speak and tell your side of the story about building the enterprise and you said oh, yeah great now at that point i was thinking okay uh, how are we going to do this so it, it, in the end, it turned out to be a simple matter. We contacted them. They all got excited, and they said, come on up. And we spent three days there. And you wowed the audience with your tales of uh, how the enterprise came to be and how you got involved. But after that, it sparked an idea. So do you want to pick it up from there and say what that idea was? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, first of all, uh, you know, I have to thank you for opening that door. And um, actually what wowed the audiences I spoke to, that I gave five talks, was my meteorite. Because <laughs> I had the only real thing from outer space in the whole, in the whole convention. And people would come up uh, after I gave a talk and they would queue up. Uh, down the aisle to hold the meteorite and get pictures of them holding it and everything. And uh, I bought the meteorite with money I was making uh, working on Star Trek. And I, uh, I got this fabulous eight pound meteorite. It's really nifty. And, um, and everybody loved it, you know, to hold something that was older than planet earth that was from outer space, it, you know, and then you get people who are interested in outer space anyway, and this is the first time they actually get to touch something that was out from the orbit between Mars and Jupiter. Yeah, I remember that. And, um, and that was, you, you got that in, uh, in Arizona at Meteor Crater, wasn't it? Meteor? No, no, that's where it's from. But uh, uh, no, I, I, got, I bought it in L.A. But uh, what, what happened is I, there were 30,000 people, Ken, at this magnificent, incredible convention. I mean, it was... It was so well done. The people who ran it really knew what they were doing, and the, the fans were amazing. And this was all new to me. You, you know, was, I mean, I didn't realize how popular Star Trek was. I mean, and this was just in, in, in the UK. Okay, people had flown in. I mean, we met a couple from Kuala Lumpur who had come to it, and there was a guy from uh, Norway who came, and people from all over Europe. But, I, you know, 30,000 people. And, and it was such an experience. And so, you know, got, I got home at about one in the morning on, on Sunday night and I woke up Monday morning buzzing, you know, the morning after 
the wonderful night before, if you will, experience. And um, I thought, I, you know, I have to write about my part in anything to do with Star Trek. And so I wrote a book, uh, Creating the Enterprise, um, which is on its way to you as we speak, Ken. Right. Um, <laughs> which you kindly ordered, Helping Project Enterprise. And, and then after writing the book, um, I, I mean, and it took me, I had to get all my memories together. And then I, I dealt with Mark Stetson, who has a prodigious memory. He's an Oscar winner and BAFTA winner. And Mark worked on the enterprise with me. And uh, he's a wonderful guy. And he has a, his memories bang on. And he was, he was always in touch with Richard and, and uh, Jim because they all live in LA. Mm-hmm. And so I arranged to meet Richard and Jim. And the three of us hadn't been together at that point for 32 years. Wow, that was one hell of a really interesting meeting, and um, so yeah, we wanted to find out where the Enterprise was, and then finally, when it was about a year later, when Jeff finally shut it down, I thought, well, that's that, you know, forget it, and and then um, there was this lovely guy Boyd Crompton of Trekworks in San Antonio, Texas, and Boyd wrote to me and he said, Paul, he said, why don't you guys build another one? you know, with modern technology and everything, make it bigger and better. And, and you guys are the only guys who can do it, you know, cause you have the, you have the, the provenance. And, um, I thought, Oh, I don't know, you know, and Boyd kept after me day after day after day. And it took me about a week to realize he was onto something. And, uh, so I talked with him about it and then I met him in LA and he, he interviewed Jim and Richard, myself. And so we decided, well, yes, we decided that if I could pull it all together and do all the work, um, we would uh, form Project Enterprise and uh, try and raise the money to recreate our, uh, our iconic model and then keep it out in the public and take her all around the world so that fans everywhere would have a chance to see her. Oh, that's pretty special. So where, where are you right now with the project? Well, it, it's, we, we've hit a bit of a, a, a bit of a bump in that. Um, I, it, it's, I mean, it's going to take, it, it's going to take two years to recreate the enterprise and the display, the virtual reality display that will surround her. I mean, it, we're talking real high tech, um, and build all the flight cases and everything and, and all the sound equipment and camera equipment and projection equipment. Um, and, uh, and that's probably going to run in the neighborhood of between two and $3 million and take really two years. Yes. But well, that most of that money, well, in fact, all of that money, once we get going can be raised through the, the documentary rights with somebody like Netflix or somebody like that, because we want to do a documentary of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the meantime, I managed to get uh, Nichelle Nichols on board with us and she's our, our spokesperson and she's all over the website. And Nichelle um, wants to um, debut the enterprise at Grauman's Chinese theater and Hollywood Boulevard and, um, 
and uh, and she said when I met her, uh, Tony ran into her at at the bar uh, when we went back in 2014 uh, to the uh, the next convention. Meeting people for you, Tony. Pardon? It seems to be a very common way for you to meet people. I know it's a weird thing. Me a bar, me person. He's got that Irish charm, you know, that people can't resist. Apparently. The Irish charms. <laughs> yes. And um, so, uh, and so I, I was talking with Michelle, and, and when she found out what I was thinking of doing, she said, Paul, I'll unveil it. Get that thing built. So that changed everything, you know. And, and uh, I, so then Michelle gave me her details, and I flew out to L.A. and, and filmed her. And, and she's been so helpful. I mean, she's the most wonderful, wonderful woman. Yeah, she's and um, so, I, you know, we put the website together. I, I got a dear friend of mine here in England who did a marvelous job. And, you know, he still hasn't been paid what he's worth. And um, put this fabulous website together. Um, but we've only managed to raise uh, $16,000 so far and uh, $15,000 after fees. And I need about thirty-five dollars or $40,000 to hire a top PR company in, in America to get me on all the, all the talk shows and various programs and radio stations and doing interviews to explain what we want to do to get the word out to fans because we've saturated social media as much as we can right. and we really haven't gotten anywhere with it. And I have a whole, I have a whole uh, sponsorship program to bring in corporate sponsors like Enterprise Rent-A-Cars and they were interested, but they said, well, CBS hasn't authorized your project. And so I spoke with a guy at CBS. He was over here, and, and he said, the thing is, Paul, um, we may have a conflict with uh, exhibiting because you want to exhibit the enterprise. I said, yeah. Um, and he said, we may have a conflict because we've got exhibition uh, contracts that may conflict that if the enterprise is built, that we won't be able to uh, exhibit it in a CBS-authorized event. Like a, a, uh, but, uh, so I'm, I've gone back to him, but I haven't heard from him. So I'm going to have to try another tack and say, look, let's just forget exhibiting it. Let's get the thing built. I mean, it'll be great publicity. We will be able to generate so much wonderful PR and it'll be great PR for CBS. And, and if we get like Nissan and enterprise rent cars in as sponsors, I mean, we can go forward and we can get the thing built and we'll have all these, uh, we'll have A-list actors coming in, looking at the enterprise. We'll just have so much coverage. It'll be great. And let's worry about when it's finished, then let's figure out what to do with it. Uh, so I'm trying to deal with CBS at the moment at uh, doing that. And they're not, uh, they're not coming back to me because I think their hands are full uh, with the Axonar thing. Well, that's done. So that's good news. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's done. So I, I think now, um, you know, they can... They can start moving on and hopefully uh, get get back to what uh, they need to be focused on. And, they're they're and going to need us, Ken, because uh, they're going to need Project Enterprise so they can recoup all the millions of dollars they spent on the court case. And without us, yeah, well, uh, they're doomed. Well, yeah, it could be, could be. Uh, and, you know, we're here for them, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, so... Okay, Paul. So I, I, I so you need about well fourteen thousand more dollars to really get moving and get 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 things energized. 
and um that's you know, right. If, if I can, if I can get another fourteen or fifteen grand, then I can hire a top PR firm and travel around the country. And and they all need at least three or four months to get me to a position. You know, with all their press releases and calling up all their contacts and everything, and to set everything up for me to get out there. And once I get out there, then the corporate sponsors will be awake. NASA has already said, as soon as you're funded we'll join you. You know, you can have our imprimatur on your lab coats and on at the studio where you're building it and everything. So it's all sitting there. Uh And I'm just for want of a bit more money, then I can go ahead and we can launch this baby. And then the shell is jump in and it'll be great. It sounds it. So, you know, which, which is interesting too. So, so for the people that, you know, may have bid on the previous enterprise, um, or, or people that have deep top, deep pockets, I can speak well, uh, that love Star Trek. Is there, um, you know, looking at to see if they would donate the facility for you to build it in or, you know, donate cameras, things along those lines? Or does that all come with the PR? Well, I think once I get the uh, – look, I'm Ken, I'm open to any combination of, of things. Uh, but once I, I get the PR going and I'm out there – Right. There will be all kinds of, of things we can't even anticipate will come forward. You know, people will come out of the woodwork. Um, but, you know, a, a, a top PR company is going to run 5000 a month mm-hmm. plus expenses. And then I'll have expenses if I have to, because uh, I can stay in L.A. for free and I can stay in San Francisco for free. So that's fine. But I have to rent a car. And, um, and then if I have to fly to New York to be interviewed, on some of these, some of these things, they don't pay your expenses. In other words, they'll give you the airtime, but you have to show up. I understand. You know, and um, uh, when I had a previous book out called The Book of Love about 15 years ago, and I traveled around America, and I, I went to lots of local TV stations and radio stations, and they all wanted you. Mm-hmm. If they if it didn't cost them anything, they'll give you airtime. You know. Sure. So, um, I, with with expenses and uh, I'm probably looking at probably 20 to 25,000 for the PR company, maybe 30. Um, and I'll need minimal expenses cause I've got money dribbling in uh, from uh, social security. Uh, so, you know, that can keep me going, especially if I can stay for nothing in San Francisco or LA. So I don't need a lot of money. It's, it's, it'll all go towards the PR program. Oh, but then it'll all come back. Hey, I'm, I'm 40 minutes outside of New York, so you got another spot. So that's good. Hey, Ken. <laughs> Excellent. I'm a Boston guy, but I'm very close to New York, and that's, that's, that's just fate of companies and where you work. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's not a bad thing. And, you know, I, I'd love to, um, to stay in touch with you and, and see what we can do. Uh, you know, it's, it is funny that, um, you know, I get, I get associated all the time with, with being in the military and and I was, um, I I was in the reserves. Um, I've spent most of my, my, uh, career, uh, in business. Well, Ken, that's great. And, uh, uh, for I mean, I also have an investment uh, program for shares in the company that will own the enterprise uh, because when we get her exhibiting, even if even if it turns out we can't exhibit at a Star Trek convention, we can exhibit somewhere 
close by at the same time, say a hotel lobby or whatever, uh, a casino, and um, and we can charge her out it uh, uh, at a, a a fat fee per day plus expenses. Interesting. So to help pay back, you know what what she's going to end up costing because so many people absolutely love the enterprise, and so any way that I can get it done, I'll do it and. You know, on Project Enterprise, I mean, we have uh, uh, tiers of of lots of different uh, premiums that you can get for just for people who want to donate. You don't donate; you actually get your money's worth sure. of a of whatever you get. You can get uh, blueprints uh, that Richard did, uh, copies of my book, uh, uh, beautiful prints of the last decal sheet that I saved. So we have lots of wonderful premiums that people can collect. And then we have lots of perks as well, that if you get certain premiums over $125, you get your name engraved on a golden scroll that will be put inside the enterprise. Your name will be fired from a laser from the enterprise onto a sculpture that that Richard will design that will be on the dais, and it will go kaboom and glow as your name goes along with everyone else who has contributed to enterprise to the enterprise everybody who contributes uh at least buying a copy of the ebook has their name on that golden scroll oh isn't that cool yeah so, so paul um w- where can people get all this detailed information how can they find you project enterprise dot space project enterprise dot space that's a very unique and very easy to remember website Good. <laughs> yes, just click through. All the information is there, and you'll see in the shell, and you'll see all the perks that you can get. Um, and and then there's a link to an Indiegogo uh, site so that you can go on the Indiegogo site and contribute uh, through the Indiegogo site, or you can contribute straight uh, to Project Enterprise through PayPal, whichever you're more comfortable with. Oh, that's pretty cool. I I, I have looked at the site in the in the the photographs or the pictures of the enterprise that you guys put up are as gorgeous as watching it on screen. I, I was mesmerized by, by the quality uh, of, of, of what you guys did there. I mean, that, that you were right. The, the, the person who did it for you over in England did a beautiful job. Well, on, on top of that, uh, I have to thank Darren Doctorman uh, because the three views of the enterprise that you see on the, on the opening pages, those are all CGI by Darren Doctorman, who did the CGI enhancements on the uh, director's cut of of STMP. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's neat. Boy, I... I wish they could get that on (laughs) Blu-ray. Yeah, they... Why don't they do that? I I guess because of the way it was filmed uh, and the amount of money it would... Because they did it in 2000, I think, or 2001. And... um, it would almost have to be completely redone in order to touch it up is what I, what I was told. So, Oh, right. Right. They they did Blu-ray the original one, which is, is just as good, but the, um, that director's cut made the movie just that much better. It flowed much better. Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah. Okay. So Tony, any, any final questions for, for Paul? Um, I think there's a couple of things. We, I think people might be interested in, once you start work, uh, where exactly are you planning to start the construction of the new enterprise? Well, as uh, Jim uh, will oversee the building 
of the recreation of the Enterprise since, you know, he built it in the first place. And uh, Jim lives down near Costa Mesa, which is south of LAX. Um, we'll get a facility near him, so it's easy for him to just pop over. That would be great. And people will be able to come and stop by and see the progress in action and, and maybe get to say hello. Uh, well, that, uh, if, if you contribute um, 1000 no, is it 1000 3000 or $5,000, um, you get to visit uh, the Enterprise. You get a whole bunch of other perks as well. You get unlimited uh, access to every Star Trek convention that the, um, or any place the, the Enterprise appears for life up until the 24th century. You can pass it down through your kids. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be down uh, Costa Mesa, uh, south of LAX. Well, yes, I, our uh, our minimum um, uh, contribution is twenty dollars, and for that you get an ebook copy of my book, Creating the Enterprise. You get access to over five hours of private, exclusive interviews of Jim, myself, Ron Gress, Richard, and uh, Mark Stetson. And you also get a printable uh, file of our Hall of Fame certificate, which is really beautiful. And then, um, and that gets your name on this scroll that will be on this piece of sculpture that Richard will design, as I said before. And then as you increase up to $125, as you increase your level of participation, you get better um, uh, premiums. You get a copy of my, a signed copy of my book, or you get a signed and personalized copy of my book. Um, and you can get a copy of a film script and you, you can, I mean, there, you have to really go on the website to see what you can get. But as, as the, as the premium levels go up, then your name is more spectacularly, uh, uh, scrolled on this scroll. It might be in glowing letters. It'd be fired from the enterprise. And then, as I said, your name can be etched onto a golden scroll. It'll be placed inside the enterprise and, for $125 or more, you also get your name on the roll-up credits at the end of the documentary. I mean, fame at last. <laughs> exactly. Associated with Star Trek. How, how, yeah. how awesome is that? Huh? Indeed. You know, both you and Paul and, 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 of course, myself have been big fans of of the Enterprise. It's It's a gorgeous ship. And, Paul, to your point, it is iconic. It is the most iconic uh, – I guess, ship or emblem or however you want to define it in, 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 in movie history, right? I mean, we all know it. And, and one of the ways we can, we can prove that is there are no Star Destroyers in the Smithsonian. The Enterprise is it. She is, she is the ship of the line. And uh, it's, it's wonderful that you're putting a project together that will bring her back bigger, better, uh, more powerful, and, um, and for everybody to see. I think it's a, it's a very altruistic and, um, and, and, and wonderful endeavor, and I, and I wish you the best of luck in it. Well, Ken, thank you very much. And might I say to everyone, I'm going to steal um, a well-known person's uh, phrase here. Let's make Star Trek great again. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who said that. Yes, appropriate, considering where we are today. <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, that, I mean, Star Trek is now without 
her most powerful symbol. Um, and and it, it's a travesty. And uh, it, we can't let that stand, especially when we're around to be able to recreate her and keep her out in the public for the fans to enjoy. And it's as simple as that. And, and uh, it's a wonderful legacy for us. Sure. Nope. She's a beautiful lady and we love her. Absolutely. Okay. So talking about Project Enterprise today isn't the only thing we're talking on Trek FM. Here's some other subjects that we'll be bringing you this week. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. And then as kind of a teenager, I kind of drifted a bit from Star Trek. And, you know, I pretended one time when I went to see Star Trek Nemesis that I was actually off to see Elf instead because that sounded cooler than seeing Star Trek Nemesis. And um, maybe it still is. To the journey! Maybe even playing it with Tuvok, who I think will be brilliant at it. And then and then it just constantly going, brr, brr, like yeah. him just getting really annoyed. Yeah. Tuvok would be the Operation Champ. Yeah, he would. Yeah. See, and then the evil holographic doctor from Equinox is singing, you know, the particular nodes connected to the... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Warp 5. We should get Larry Nemechek on, and we should do a supplemental episode where we just talk and we act like we're Tellarites and we just insult each other for the whole episode. (laughs) You would probably love it. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I I don't know. That would be... I might have to get coached by our listeners. Meta Trex. And that's that's the world of language that we live in. It's not this this purely referential sense of language. Like when Riker says a minuet, he doesn't just mean, oh, yeah, that thing minuet that I can point to, whatever that is on the holodeck, right? 17th century French dance. Maybe maybe he wants to dance. <laughs> Riker wants to bust a move. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. You can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and, of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 from our website at Trek.fm and grab the RSS link. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for our other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. I also want to bring up Patreon. Patreon is so important to us. It's how we finance our shows across the network. You know, there is a, a, all of our shows are up and running now, and we have incredible bandwidth, incredible amounts of downloads, setting records month after month. And there's a cost that goes along with that. So if you could help out by joining us at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Donate as little as $15 and you can be part of the roundtable. For $25, you could be an associate producer. And, you know, we would love to have you as part of the team. So please become a Trek FM patron. We'd like to thank our associate producers of Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts, Norman Lau and Aaron Harvey. Thanks so much for all your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM through Patreon. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES uh, underscore 1701, Norm at Starfighter 1701, and Aaron Harvey at GeekFilter. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM slash contact the, uh, the website and look for the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpike.com slash Trek FM and leave us a voicemail message. You can also contact us through Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM, and the Babel Conference. Now that's where Zach and I and the rest of the team are always at to get your feedback on our shows and to have some great discussion. And on this show in particular, we're going to have Paul come back and be monitoring the Babel Conference for any additional questions you might have. So if you're looking for me, you can reach me through Facebook directly, again, through the Babel Conference, 
or via Twitter at BostonSCPO. You can reach my good friend and partner, Zach, who we missed this week, and I hope he enjoys this show, uh, at MoronZach, M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. Standard Orbit.